ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, listeners. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. This week, we want to bring you an FP Live about India's place with Putin, and specifically India's reluctance to join the Western response to the war in Ukraine. Foreign Policy's editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, sat down with two people to shed light on this. Shivshankar Menon, a former Indian foreign secretary and national security advisor, and Suhasini Haider, the diplomatic affairs editor of The Hindu. They spoke about India's long history with Russia, the ability to get Russian oil at a heavy discount, and how all this impacts the global order, particularly when it comes to American security strategy in the Asia Pacific. Just a heads up, this event was recorded last week, so some parts of the conversation may have been overtaken by recent events. Now, here's that conversation. Over the last several weeks now, New Delhi has received high-level envoys from China, Russia, Mexico, Greece, Oman, Austria, the UK, the United States, Germany, and more. All of this a seeming campaign to get India to join the West's sanctions on Russia. No such luck. Instead, in several UN sessions now, India has chosen to abstain from condemning Russia. More than that, it doesn't even name Russia uh, whenever it does talk about the atrocities there. Part of this, of course, is because India has a historic relationship going back to the Soviet Union. To this day, much of India's military weaponry comes from Russia. And beyond all of that, India, like Russia, believes in multipolarity and more specifically, a form of non-alignment. But... India has also been growing closer to the United States in recent years. There's much talk of shared values between the world's oldest and largest democracies. And as Russia's atrocities in places like Bucha come to light, India's studied neutrality becomes possibly harder to justify, or does it? To discuss that and much else, let me bring in my esteemed guests. Suhasni Haider is the national and diplomatic editor of The Hindu, one of India's oldest and most respected national dailies. Back in the day, Suhasni was also my predecessor at CNN as a correspondent in the network's Delhi Bureau. And Shiv Shankar Menon is India's former national security advisor and also its former foreign secretary. He's the author of several books on Indian foreign policy and is one of the most respected analysts of affairs in the region. Welcome to FP Live, both of you. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having us. So Ambassador Menon, uh, let's start with you. For many in the West, 
India appears to be a paradox. On the one hand, as I said, it's the world's largest democracy. Um, but here it is, choosing to be in the same category as China and some other non-democracies in not censuring Russia. Uh, this is sort of the view in the West that I'm portraying. Can you explain that? Well, I think that's really a false dichotomy. If you look at those who abstained in the UN General Assembly or who have not signed on to the economic sanctions, it includes some large democracies, Brazil, for instance, uh, India. It also includes others. And I think China's reasons for the stance she's taken, I think, are very different from the Indian reasons. from my, from my point of view, it seems to me that what India is trying to do is to create space for a negotiation, for a way forward out of the crisis, to stop the war and to find a solution to the problems of European security and order, which Ukraine is, I think, a symptom of. So I'm not sure that one can say that, oh, this is all the autocracies on one side and India and China are on the same side. No, in fact, I think our approach is, is quite different. You'll notice when Wangi visited India, there wasn't a joint statement or any common set of words on the Ukraine crisis. You know, uh, just to push you a little bit on that, I, 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 I completely agree with you, in fact, but, but India seems to be treated a little differently than, say, Brazil or South Africa. And the reason why I say that is that in recent weeks, you've had all these envoys come to Delhi um, you know, India's foreign minister, uh, Jay Shankar, called it a campaign of sorts to try and convince India. Um, inasmuch, it may be a dichotomy, but there is this perception, um, at least of India's place in the world, uh, as it sort of moves closer to the United States, given the Quad, given other alignments, given its, its priorities to sort of be a bulwark against China. Given all of that, there is some surprise in the West. Um, do you think India sees that as something that um, it needs to push back against? Is it frustrated by that surprise? I, I'm not sure that we should be frustrated. If anything, I think we should be flattered that people think it worth their while to come and talk to us at a moment of crisis. The problem with a crisis like this, of course, is that everyone seems to know what everybody else's interest is. Uh, and I'm not sure that... Uh, it's very helpful for us to tell each other what we should be doing. Uh, I think when, when we look at it in either emotional terms or pose it as a question of norms and principles, or as you said, of state systems, autocracies versus democracies, I think it's a framing which actually gets in the way of peacefully resolving and finding a better situation than the war that we have. Uh, and that, I think, for me, is the most important. We need to be looking at outcomes here rather than who was right and wrong. And I mean, that, there, that, there's time for that later. But first, let's get over the crisis, stop the war and bring some sort of security and order to Europe. Mm. I'm going to come back to you on that because I do want a sense of uh, what what these diplomats might be saying behind the scenes that they can't say in public. So Hasni, let me bring you in. Do you get the sense that India's stance is evolving at all? And I think specifically just over the last week, uh, given the killings in Bucha, given the imagery that a lot of people in India, of course, get to see, 
Um, do you imagine that that might move the needle at all in terms of potential pressure on the government to, to change its response? Well, um, Ravi, I certainly don't think the government is under public pressure uh, when it comes to its stand on Russia. If anything, I think uh, we've seen a lot of uh, support for different reasons. Some are just supporters of the government, so they'll go along with whatever the government does, and it's a very popular government, won a lot of elections. Uh, some are actually very still wedded to the idea of history, traditional partnership with Russia, the idea uh, that you, I'm sure, have heard a lot of times that Russia has come to India's aid at the international sphere, has protected India, and that sort of thing. Has the government's needle moved? To be honest, I would say in words, we are certainly seeing the government engage with the issue much more, right? At the beginning of the crisis, the government perhaps was only engaging with Indians caught in the crossfire. Uh, and that went on for a few weeks at least until all 20, 22,000 Indians uh, came out of the Ukraine safely, uh, except for one who passed away. Um, but I don't think that in actual substance, uh, the needle has moved at all. In other words, take the vote on uh, the Human Rights Council, for example. And I'm not going into why India did what it did. They have many reasons on the process, how it was brought about, and all the rest of it. But would India a few weeks ago have voted any other way but abstain? I don't think so. I don't think that needle has changed. There have been 12 votes, uh, 12 abstentions. Uh, India is very much positioning itself with each abstention in a certain uh, particular kind of way. Uh, I do think the explanations of both seem to go much further. I, I, I was told by a Western diplomat a few days ago that we love your explanation of votes. We just don't like your votes. Right. Um, the truth is that, uh, that the government is not changing its position. And I, I think that the fact that you had all these visitors you spoke about, but they were followed by Mr. Lavrov. Uh, who held a press conference in Delhi, who uh, spoke very clearly about what India and Russia were doing together uh, in terms of business and, and, and all the rest in, in the crisis. Uh, I think, uh, and, and, and had that meeting with Prime Minister Modi, who didn't meet any of the other envoys. Mm. Uh, I think that speaks for itself. Mm. And just an, another beat on this in terms of the sort of opprobrium in the West, you know, if you look at the Western press, um, you know, the mainstream papers in the United States and the UK, um, criticism of India is very strong. And this is not a sort of strategic criticism, but a moral criticism. Do you think that moves the needle at all? And does it reach Indians? Does that change discussions in India or do they just brush it off? You know, the truth is moral uh, discussions tend to produce uh, moral counters. And there are many. We've heard from External Affairs Minister uh, Jai Shankar as well. The moment he's asked, how can India be increasing its oil intake from Russia? And, you know, in the past month, we've bought practically as much as we bought from Russia in the entire year of 2021, but for a number of reasons. Um, uh, the, the, his response was very clear, and he said it on stage with British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss right there. Uh, that, uh, well, the people who are asking us to cut oil, apart from the US, uh, Europe is continuing to buy oil from them. So if you were to put uh, the moral and the rhetoric arguments aside, because, you know, this, this can go back into history, uh, and you might have heard many of the Indian arguments about where the genesis of the crisis came from, what Russia's position on NATO has been, back uh, to the Iraq war and the US's uh, a lack of a UN mandate in 2003. And I should remind you at that time, actually, India had not only criticized 
the US uh, uh, invasion of Iraq, but had actually had a parliament resolution go by. I think if you put all these moral uh, reasons aside, there are very solid reasons why the government of the day, the Modi government, feels that it's not just about uh, traditional ties with Russia, mm. uh, but it, it feels very much that it is in its own interests in the future uh, to keep and maintain. You know, they keep using the word, we, we need to stabilize our uh, engagement with Russia. We need to make sure that none of the other stuff really affects it. I find that itself slightly problematic, but that was the Ministry of External Affairs' formulation, uh, speaking yesterday about uh, you know, these payment mechanisms on trade with Russia. And they said, what we are doing, trying to do is this crisis has changed things. There are now these sanctions or, or these restrictions that have been put by various countries. And we're just seeking to stabilize the relationship at this time. Uh, so I think the, the, the government of the day here definitely feels that its future, and I can uh, reel out a list of, uh, of, of numbers for you there, that its future uh, is actually in keeping just this position. And I want to come back to you about the future. You've raised lots of interesting points. Just on the oil uh, and gas issue, to be clear, India has been buying more Russian uh crude in recent uh, months, but it still only receives about one to 2% of its total uh, crude from Mm -hmm. Russia, whereas Europe receives much more, I think orders of magnitude higher. Um, Ambassador Menon, let me bring you back in. Um, uh, You know, I I, I did say I wanted to ask you this. So here goes, um, what's going on behind the scenes? Because there are many reasons why um, this war could be bad for India. If you look at the the impacts on global crude prices, the impacts on global inflation, uh, India is a net importer of uh, so many different types of commodities, of course. Um, so given all of that, what do you think might be going on behind the scenes, uh, say when um, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov was in Delhi? I think there's no question that... Uh... The second order impacts on India are not necessarily good at all. In fact, you mentioned some of the economic ones, fertilizer markets, oil, gas, energy, etc. But and the world economy. But more than that, there are also political impacts. I mean, if the US gets distracted uh, from uh, the Indo-Pacific, from Asia, where I think the main geopolitical issues are, that will determine our future then I think from an Indian point of view, that's not very welcome. You've already seen very strange responses. In Japan, for instance, Abe is talking about nuclear weapons. And that's, that's quite a big step. Uh, so I, I think behind the scenes, India would do everything it could to make it clear that what it thinks is a way forward and a way out of this. I mean, whether it was with Lavrov, or with anybody else who comes to us. Uh, and I, I get the sense that actually public opinion in India is maybe f- slightly ahead of what the government is saying in public. Mm. Uh, if you look at the debate in parliament on the 5th, it's interesting. Some people refer to traditional ties with Russia, but nobody supported what Russia had done. Mm. Not one political party. In fact, most of them spoke quite clearly in condemnation of it. And that's not something that I've seen for a very long time. Uh, So when you said, is the Indian position evolving? I think it's evolving over time, certainly. My summary is 
India will avoid trying to make that choice between the West and Russia if she can. But the US and the West are essential partners for India, for India's transformation, every which way, for India's security. Russia is a desirable partner. Um, so and let me ask you this. There. So there is a difference there. But right. India will try very hard to avoid having to choose. Um, a related question then, and I'm going to start bringing some questions in from our viewers here. Um, Michael Kugelman, um, who is the author of our weekly newsletter, South Asia Brief, which I urge all of our viewers today to sign up for, he asks if um, India could be a viable third party mediator. They have a special relationship with Russia, but also a good relationship with Ukraine. Um, and as New Delhi looks to step up its role on the world stage, uh, do you think that it would be realistic to ask them to to maybe mediate in some form? You know, I think mediation works when both parties want uh, a way out, but are unable to agree to it between themselves. I'm not sure that we've arrived at that point yet. And the reason I say this is because I honestly don't understand why Russia doesn't declare victory and go home. She has a land bridge to the Ukraine, uh, Donbass has been exp expanded, both Donetsk, Lugansk. She has control of those areas. She has a promise from the Ukrainian government not to join NATO. She has an agreement, or at least a verbal commitment, to discuss the status of Crimea and the other territories which are under Russian control over the next 15 years, in effect postponing the territorial issue. Uh, so, I mean, frankly, there's enough there to say, that's it. We've got what we wanted. Let's tie this up in some kind of deal. But I don't see why that's not what I hear, at mm. least in public. I'm not privy to the private conversations. Mm. So which makes me wonder whether the time is right for mediation, because it's a necessary condition that both sides must want some way out. It's a hopeful sign that they've been talking since what, day four between Ukraine and, and Russia. And India has been encouraging them. And I, I do think that India should take the stance, which I think we've as good as said, that we're available if, if both sides wish it. Uh, but then really it's up to them. They, they started it, they must want to end it. Right. Uh, so Hasni, let's bring you back in. I mean, you, you mentioned the history of, you know, the number of times Russia's come to India's aid. There's so many crucial moments, 1971, uh, you know, when India fought Pakistan and helped birth Bangladesh. And then um, also after the India-China spat in Galwan, uh, Russia convened a meeting between the two sides. Uh, and, and of course, there's the military sort of relationship, which we haven't talked about much. Much of India's um, arms procurement uh, still, I believe, more than a majority is from Russia. How much do all of those factors play into some of India's thinking or decision-making um, as it looks to, to message its stance on the world stage? Remy, let's put it this way. I mean, if you were to try and, you know, get a little balance out and say, how much are we getting from this country and how much are we getting from that country? Uh, you know, it, it, would, it would be very difficult to do. On the other hand, I can definitely say that India does not, you know, we talk about so many countries coming here saying these things, but it doesn't really feel uh, pressure to have to let one or the other go. 
Uh, and this ties into some of what I was talking about when it comes to history, the idea that India, uh, uh, it's not just about India had this peace treaty with Russia or that Russia helped India. It is about India's stance as a non-aligned, uh, uh, slightly cussed power, if you like, that wouldn't sign the NPT, that didn't want to be part of, uh, you know, uh, of global uh, areas where it was not a rule maker in a certain sense. Um, and why I say this is because when I look today at the things that India definitely has from Russia, I see much more in terms, particularly with this government, in the future uh, than I do even of this, uh, you know, this legacy and, and uh, what uh, Prime Minister Modi may have said in Washington, you know, that he had shrugged off the hesitations of history in a sense, by, uh, by teaming up with the United States. And I'll quickly take you through five places where I think uh, this government in particular feels a comfort level with Russia, which it does not want to give up because what is it mm. giving it up in favor of? Mm. Uh, the first, when you talk about defense dependency, and of course it is well known, uh, you know, 60% uh, of India's defense hardware, 85% of India's spares, uh, and practically all of India's transfer of technology hardware is coming from Russia. Uh, but what is perhaps not known as much is India's premier export. And India is talking much more about Atmanirbhar policy, about uh, making in India. Its premier military export is something called BrahMos. That stands for Brahmaputra mm -hmm. Moskva. Uh, it's literally an India-Russia joint collaboration. It's not going to happen uh, without Russia. Uh, when it comes to nuclear plants, regardless of the civil nuclear deal with the US, today it is only Russia that actually runs nuclear plants power plants in India. No other country does because of India's issues with liability. Uh, when it comes to oil investment, India's Indian firms have about $16 billion in oil in Russia. So when you say one to 2%, maybe, but the future uh, mm. is in Sakhalin one and other oil fields. Uh, Russia owns an entire refinery uh, uh, in Vardinar in Gujarat, right on uh, the Indian West Coast. Uh, the second part I would say is that there is this new world coming out uh, as Ambassador Menon said, not everybody has joined the sanctions regime. Only about 30 to 40 countries are actually a part of it right now. So if there is going to be this future non-dollar and dollar world, India is going to keep its options open on that. Uh, the third, I would say, and this is a little more political, uh, and you may not agree with me, but we live in hyper-nationalist times. We live in majoritarian times and populist governments around the world are working in very similar ways, more autocratic, more in terms of protectionist, uh, and at that time, we see in India, uh, when it comes to things like the Citizenship Amendment Act, the treatment of minorities, uh, the, the changes in Jammu Kashmir, uh, the farmers' protests, uh, New Delhi got a lot of trouble, if you like, from Europe, uh, from the EU, from the US. Uh, you know, there were, uh, there were the US Congress, parliaments in Europe, uh, the UK all had something to say about India's issues. Uh, there wasn't anything coming out of Russia at this time. And I would think that a government that is seeing these as, as policies that are intrinsic to its ideology are going to see the difference uh, between having to deal with these human rights concerns coming from one side and none from the other. Uh, fourth, Ambassador Menon alluded to it as well, India's continental challenge is its foremost challenge. The challenge from China is much greater on the land than it is, 3,500 kilometers. It's much greater on land than it is in this maritime sphere. Uh, and in that, Russia can be a little more helpful than any other country uh, when, you, when you add it up. And the final one is the personal comfort levels. People seem to forget that Prime Minister Modi and President Putin have a very good uh, relationship with each other. President Putin 
only went to three places. He went to Brussels to meet President Biden last year. He came this year to meet Xi in Beijing. And he came to Delhi for a one-on-one -on -one with Prime Minister Modi. There is a comfort level there. Uh, and, and another thing many people in the West team seem to forget uh, is that in exactly the same year that the Quad was revived, this government actually chose to enter the SCO. Now, you might not think the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is a, is a big deal. But it's as much, you know, in terms of uh, talking about, at least, a, 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 a kind of a strategic framework uh, as the Quad does. The SEO does things together. In fact, they do uh, military exercises mm. together. Um, right. And uh, they discuss issues much like we see the Quad doing at present. So while I'm not trying to compare one with the other, I'm just saying that there's a whole world out there that is, is sometimes neglected when you are talking about only India, you know, New Delhi's relationship with Washington or with the West, uh, that they don't see when it comes to uh, the current relationship between India and Russia. Those are a great set of points, uh, Sohasini, and I want to take some of them up. I also want to bring in some of our viewer questions. Um, there's a comment from uh, Shumit Ganguly, who many of you know, he's a columnist at FP. Uh, he points out, was it really necessary for India to purchase Russian oil at this juncture when its dependence on Russian oil is so slight? I know, Sohasini, you pointed to the future there. Uh, so in some sense, that, that tackles that. Robert Blackwell, um, of course, the former U.S. ambassador to India, um, asks, uh, will the current disagreement between India and the U.S. over Ukraine-Russia have a long-term negative impact on the bilateral relationship? Ambassador Menon, I'm going to come to you with that. And just as I do, I'm just going to read one more question out, also on the U.S.-India uh, relationship, essentially asking, does America need India more? then India needs America. Ambassador Menon? Uh, I think we both need each other. And frankly, I think the India-US relationship is much more robust than people seem to give it credit for. It's not going to be determined by what happens in the Ukraine. Uh, this is a relationship which has survived pretty drastic changes of government in both countries, in both the US and if you think of it since President Clinton's time. The U.S. has gone through several political transitions, so has India. And yet the relationship has only improved and got better and better. So I'm, I don't think that uh, what's happening in the Ukraine or uh, this, the present excitement about the Ukraine is going to affect the long-term trend towards ever better India-U.S. relations. And that's because it's based on a congruence of interests. We like to stress common principles, democratic values, and so on, but it's the solid basis of common interests and that congruence. I'm not saying identity, which is why it's not an alliance, it's a partnership. Mm. But that congruence is what we have continuously built up. And today, actually, you have a situation where neither side, I think, is, is looking for an alliance, but we do many of the things that allies do. In the US is the country with which we do the most military exercises. We have a level of interoperability, uh, which I think is rare. We have very good cooperation in the security fields. And the US actually overtook Russia as a supplier of weapons to India in 2016. Uh, so why did India buy oil? Did you notice the price of oil recently? And uh, how dependent India is on oil imports. 
and where inflation is in India and how we can't afford not to buy cheap oil. Uh, and certainly not because if somebody feels that, oh, this might be the right or wrong thing when the overwhelming majority of countries in the world are not buying into those sanctions. And as uh, Jayashankar said, many of those who are saying we shouldn't be buying oil are actually buying oil themselves. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, actually India-US relations have a very solid basis to go on. I, I, I'm not particularly worried about that. But I do think that the second order effects of what's happening in the Ukraine are not very good. Uh, and therefore, we do have an interest in seeing a quick and early resolution of the problem. Mm. And it seems to me you're, you're urging us all to think more of the US-India relationship, less in moral terms, less in sort of uh, ethical terms, but more in terms of, uh, as you put it, a congruence of interests. Um, one of our columnists, Raja Mohan, I, I know you know him, uh, um, wrote this week that India and the US are likely to announce a number of new initiatives in the next few days on defense cooperation, outer space, maritime intelligence sharing. Um, and right after he wrote that, we learned that the there is a two plus two, the so-called two plus two ministerial dialogue uh, next week. So India's defense and foreign ministers will visit Washington for talks with their counterparts. Um, just very quickly, Ambassador Menon, uh, what do you expect out of those talks? Well, as you said, I would expect a, a thickening, as it were, of the defense security relationship. I'd also expect there are a whole host of other issues, big issues in the world, on which India and the US are getting closer. And these are big transnational issues, even on issues like climate change and so on, where India, the distance between India and the US today is much less than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. And that, that is where I think we should be working on larger issues of Asian security, of maritime security, uh, the bigger transnational issues. I think there's, there's much more potential there. Mm. Uh, so Hasni, I'll bring you in for the last question. Uh, there's a question from Bharat Bisay about whether, um, you know, if Russia begins to use biochemical weapons in Ukraine, or if there's a tactical nuclear device that goes off, um, do you think that might change the Indian government's position? Um, and I want to use that as a way just to take us finally to where the Indian polity uh, is headed. You know, last month, in as much as Twitter is any guide for anything, um, you know, the hashtag I stand with Putin was trending uh, in India. Um, so, Hasneen, I know you've traveled far and wide across India and, and in a sense, have a, a real finger on the pulse of, of how people are thinking. What's your sense of, you know, what would make, how much pressure does the Indian polity exert and, and what kinds of things might, might change uh, the calculus uh, on that front? You know, Ravi, you know as well as I do that um, truth today is so polarized in many ways that uh, even if you were to see some kind of an attack, the first response would, there would be two versions to it, just as we are seeing in Bukha. Uh, right now. So I don't want to go into the hypotheticals of obviously if it was very clear that one country was uh, carrying out a nuclear uh, attack or biochem attack, I, I, I don't think it would matter. The whole world would change. Uh, it wouldn't be about one country or another country. Um, but I do want to make the point over here, Ambassador Menon uh, spoke a little bit about the oil. 
that it's not as if India's uh, positions cannot be changed at all. Uh, in uh, just five years ago, 2017, uh, Mr. Trump made it very clear he would sanction India if uh, India did not give up all zero out oil from Iran, uh, and then subsequently Venezuela under the Katsa sanctions. Uh, and actually, India complied. And that's one of the reasons the government today is saying, wait a minute, you make us give all these things up. Iran oil was the cheapest source for India for years. Uh, we haven't been able to get the West Asian countries, the Middle Eastern countries, to give us oil at very uh, you know, discounted rates or decent rates, uh, according to India. Uh, and, uh, uh, and now you're saying that the one other option, uh, uh, Russia, is also off limit. The point being, you have to be careful. Uh, if you think that this any of this is happening for the very first time or that India's mm. reaction is not understandable because there is no uh, history to it. That's very true. And the Iran example is uh, was painful for India because Iran, Iranian crude was was exactly what Indian refineries were designed to receive. Um, so uh, that was painful at that time. Um, so Hasni Haider, Ambassador Menon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ravi. We could have gone on much longer, of course. Uh, these two excellent guests um, had uh, so many interesting thoughts to offer us. And I want to thank our audience as well for the uh, very intelligent uh, questions you've been posing. Uh, the conversation must go on, of course. So please go to foreignpolicy.com. Uh, I name checked a few of the articles uh, that we've written on this issue, but there will, of course, be much more. Uh, you can also look at our broader coverage on Putin's war in Ukraine, all of that on foreignpolicy.com. And of course, if you liked this discussion, uh, take a look at our other forthcoming FP Live interviews coming up. Next week, we have an FP Live about whether Putin would use nuclear weapons. Uh, with two FP columnists, that's with Matthew Kronig, Emma Ashford of the Atlantic Council. Uh, they both write uh, a column for FP called It's Debatable. That's hosted by my colleague Sasha Polakow-Suransky. You can see the times there on your screen. And then on Friday next week, Friday, April 15th at 10 a.m. Eastern, we have another FP Live on the China Challenge. And we're going to look at where Beijing stands amid all of this. That's with Melinda Liu uh, in Beijing and Hal Brands in D.C. That is also when we launch FP's next print issue, our, some, our spring print issue, which focuses on China. Um, so you'll want to learn more about that. All of these events on foreignpolicy.com slash live. And then lastly, we also have some terrific partner events those are on foreignpolicy.com backslash events. Our annual climate summit is coming up on April 27th and 28th. I urge you to tune in for that. We have John Kerry joining us, the U.S. climate envoy, Ban Ki-moon, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, and many other compelling guests and climate experts. Stay tuned for all of that. For now, I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor-in-chief been a pleasure hosting you um, for the last half hour stay with us foreignpolicy.com take care and see you soon that was a conversation from fp live about the war in ukraine and india's response to russia's military action our thanks to shivshankar menon former indian foreign secretary and suhasini Haider, diplomatic affairs editor for the hindu that's all for foreign policy playlist if you like what you heard go ahead and subscribe and if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm your host, Laura Ross-Brautellum. 
Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in your feed next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.